Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello. Welcome to Off the Page a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Will Brewer will read a selection of new and recent poems. William Brewer is the author of I Know Your Kind, winner of the National Poetry Series, and Oxiana, selected for the Poetry Society of America's 30 and Under Chapbook Fellowship. His work has appeared or is forthcoming in Boston Review, the Iowa Review, Narrative, where it was awarded the 30 Below Prize, The Nation, New England Review, The New Yorker, and other journals. Currently a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, He was born and raised in West Virginia. I'm William Brewer, the author of I Know Your Kind, a poetry collection about the opiate epidemic in West Virginia. And I'm going to read some new poems from what hopefully will become book two. The first one I'm going to read is called Orange. My nail cuts through the peel, sends a burst of oily mist through the sun splayed over my aisle seat. The droplets move in tandem, refracting the light, and with the mist come bright citrus notes that rapidly disperse into the olfactory systems of surrounding passengers, interrupting their thoughts, stirring awake the man in front of me who hours ago told his seatmate, I'm taking a little Valium. If you need to pee, climb over me. He shivers, rubs his eyes. We speed into a knot of clouds, and before we're through, he's asleep again. Chipped ice sweating onto napkins mapped with the country. An already completed crossword in the seat back. A game I play with myself is to see how long I can keep the peel as a single coil. It's carpeted underside its surface pocked like a teenage face. Each tear releases more droplets I admire for how they seem to assemble and swell, a plume that breaks apart with a kind of intention, a mission, how I imagine chemicals to operate in a medical context, dispatched into systems of cells, trained to obliterate, defend, convert, Depending on the light, some reach an almost amber tone while others bleach to yellow as if administered different dyes like the slides of deformed cells I studied three nights ago while googling the specifics of my father's leukemia. A browser window opened onto paragraphs describing how it's most common among California migrant workers and those exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam and yet my father stayed out of the war. Another page showed photos of drum barrels stacked in rows, each one painted with a stripe of orange from which the agent gets its name. There's also an agent pink, purple, green, blue, white. 
called rainbow herbicides because nothing is too benign to be excluded from tactical use. I see maps of dioxin production include a plant in Newark, New Jersey, where a few miles inland my father as a boy stood at his front door and watched his father waking up hungover in the front seat of his Ford where he passed out again after a night at the VFW. A memory inherited so long ago, I can't remember when he told me, or if he even did. And yet it matures in shapes and textures. The color of the car, the dude grass shining, high broken ceiling and easterly winds blowing over from Newark. I remember watching the war in black and white in someone's living room, then in color, my father said once. I searched for images of scorched bone marrow, and my wife demanded I come to bed. I eat the orange wedge by wedge, the pods exploding between my teeth, wipe my fingers on the seat cushion. I look up and see on a seat-back TV a few rows down an aged Marlon Brando as an even older Vito Corleone, squirrel-cheeked, sitting among the tomatoes, slide an orange peel over his teeth and smile at his grandson who screams and cries. He removes the peel, laughs, the boy laughs, chases Vito through the stakes, trying to spray him with a canister of chemicals that mist over the family's San Marzano's. Then Vito coughs, staggers through a pirouette, and collapses. The boy thinks this, too, is a joke, stands over the corpse, soaking its shirt with chemicals. The cabin jerks, the seatbelt sign dings on. A child behind me coughs. I hold my breath, flash through panic fantasies of carrying my father's death to him. In my head, I hear the sentences that describe how possible side effects and genetic mutations can be passed down to the exposed offspring. I read them once, then again, then couldn't stop, wondering if I'd just been introduced to my death through reading, that it's already in me, a blip on the end of an x-axis just waiting for the data to catch up to it, something I can Google, read its Wikipedia page, my death as a searchable item, my death inherited, manufactured by the war, my death the result of my country, already fraying the edges of my cells, a future blankness detected by scans, the war passed down, the war inside of me. I stare down at the bare wintered woods of the Alleghenies blurring past and wonder if all the acres decimated by the rainbow look like that, but all the time. Rolling hills of brown trees give way to sprawl, prefabricated homes, cul-de-sacs. The oils moved like angelic flame, the scent with incredible speed. I imagine the phantom waves of messages I can't yet read rising to my phone that say, we've been discharged and are heading home. Call us when you land. My father shivering in the passenger seat, extreme nausea and aches, fatigue and low spirits. I hand the peel to the flight attendant. Gray flaps of wing metal rise and adjust, a slight shift of the plane's axes. My tray table is in the locked and upright position. 
My seatbelt is low and tight across my lap. I look down once more at the mountainous dirt I call home, then return to my book about the assassination. This poem is called Austerity. One of us found the mutt. Someone else leashed it to the truck outside the night of the winter storm to keep the gas from getting siphoned. After only an hour, the barking gave way to whimpers so high-pitched and persistent, I tried to pretend that a chain-link gate was swinging in the wind. But as the storm thrashed and grew, the calls weakened, then slowed, the spaces between them growing farther apart, until at last one stretched into a silence so long I was in a dream when I heard the grind of the snowplow that disrupted it, the truck invisible in whiteout, leaving its trail of cinder on the uncovered street, black as the headlines reporting on the old and tired city where the citizens are told to abandon their homes, then stay, then leave, by different slips of paper falling from the sky. This poem is titled, House Sitting. Ten pound art book about Berlin. Black and whites of a bear rifled down in a square. Boys in sun on rubble. A woman wearing a gas mask pushing a pram. I was examining each photo for a glimpse of street corner or sidewalk, wondering if it could be the spot where my ancestor the roofer's head smashed into the pavement when he fell, the loss that earned the payout that put his children on a boat that put me here, when I smelled something burning. But what began as an acrid odor softened to the familiar scent of bonfires, signature fragrance of the dying season. I never know where it's coming from, but in it, there's always that warm anticipation of Halloween, I remember. And within that, the disappointment when it was never like the movies. No New England facades. No sidewalks choked with kids. There weren't enough of us. And yet, I hear children's laughter like I'm there again. Not in the memory, but the expectation. Outside the window, a girl is filming on her phone, another girl tossing handfuls of red maple over her head. I can see on the screen the video playing in a short, closed loop. The leaves go up, then are rewound into her hands, never falling all the way into the grass over which they're scattered now after she dropped them when suddenly a fire truck blared by awaking at my feet the dog I'm paid to keep alive. Breadwinner I am not hiding from the night, more like preparing for it, waiting for its signals. Above me, the bed springs sewn up in stained canvas on the old frame. My breathing slowed 
to slow my mind. I go very still, press my mouth to the floor, and try to keep my exhales from moving the dust to where the surgical light of the street lamp glazes the rug. Right on time, the driveway crackling awake, the hole punched in the air when the engine goes dead. Because I cannot stand the sound of how the day has changed his walk, worn boot soles buffing the lime-washed pine of the porch, does his limp drag, does he kick the baseboard, a code relaying whether we will eat from the white plates waiting on the handmade table, or if one will fly across the room and turn to dust against the wall. I press my hands to my ears and listen to the oceanic rush of blood in my temples, try to imagine a sea past the sea that keeps going out, green into green, the spinning stones cracked smaller. And then the squish of his steps through the garden to the shed where he sits alone, assembling and taking apart over and over the same machine. Alloy. After my mother called to tell me that the woman who raised me had died, I hung up and returned to the long table where my friends were drinking below a glowing white sign that belonged to the bar that once was the bar where we now sat. Their figures grayed, made vague and two-dimensional like half-erased sketches and remained there until I found myself standing in rain before the window of a vacant shop, studying my reflection with such intensity that my face became anonymous, like a word repeated so many times you lose its meaning. And then there passed over it what I think the ancient Japanese bladesmiths meant when they described how they'd cover a sword in clay rest it in the forge, and watch for the whitest heat to ripple over its surface. The sign of carbon dissolving, the steel pushed to a hardness capable of holding the deadliest edge before plunging it in water. The weather had slowed. Beside me, a man was yelling, demanding to use my phone, and when I said no, he stomped toward me, closer, then closer, until he was right up in my face. And in the periphery, I could see our reflections in the window, almost quivering from the recklessness between us. And knew, love, it was exactly like this when, for the first time, we stepped toward each other, like two people folding a bedsheet, though neither of us can remember it.
Thank you, Will, for being here on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so you recently published your first collection, I Know You're Kind, which um, deals with the opioid epidemic in um, America and in particular through the lens of your hometown mm -hmm. in West Virginia. And the work that you uh, shared with us today is new work. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk to the extent that you want <laughs> to talk about where you see your writing going now that you've um, published this first book and, and where you see your poetry sort of heading. So writing a book about the opiate epidemic is inherently writing a book about death, but it's writing about death that's occurring on a on not just a large scale, but in a kind of strange, um, it's a strange social occurrence, right? An epidemic is something that you can actually kind of witness happening as it goes, and so that was a tricky thing to uh, to do and think about. And during the time when I was writing that book, a number of people close to me were getting ill or dying from things not related to the opiate epidemic. Uh, but as I came to realize, many of these people whom I was related to, that the things they were getting sick from or the things that were killing them were things that could very much be the thing that takes me off the planet as well. So uh, whether that's genetic um, mutations, as I look at in the orange poem, my father at the time had gotten a strange kind of, he'd had a number of illnesses, and one of which was he had developed a strange leukemia that is associated with Agent Orange exposure, which I became deeply fascinated by and terrified by at the same time. And I think as I began to start writing new work after the book, I found myself thinking about how the notion that, uh, our death is oftentimes not as a, a wild or unknown as we like to think it is. And that depending where you're from in America, you might grow up next to a chemical plant that very much might be responsible for killing you. Or you grow up drinking water that's been polluted by a coal mine that's going to absolutely be the thing that causes the disease that kills you. And so I think I began to grow... Uh, intrigued and paranoid and all these things which I try to channel into the work. So I think the poems are much more in my voice or in a, in a sort of characterized version of my voice in a way that they're not in the first book. Do you see in these new poems that you're maybe looking more inward? I don't know if it's that I'm looking more inward or if it's that I'm observing how I'm reacting to stuff. So paranoia being something uh, that I've realized I can fall into bouts of ways way more quickly than perhaps I'd realized. Uh, or the way in which um, when, for example, we experience the death of someone close to us, we enter a kind of strange state of shock where you feel disassociation and you really can kind of observe yourself moving through space because you expect yourself to be reacting and feeling certain things. And that's often not what's going on. And I became really intrigued in that way. I felt as if I was kind of watching myself through a camera that was floating behind my head. That being said, I'm always adding a fictional element to my work. And so in a way, as the poems have developed and the new manuscript has 
um, grown, I think I've created a couple fictionalized people that I share similarities with, but maybe are not me completely. And there are combinations as well of other people in my life or watching how other people I know process things like grief or illness or the or paranoia about their health when perhaps they're totally healthy. Um, but I still consider myself at the end of the day someone that is an observer. I don't think that my work comes from a place where I am trying to call out. I'm trying to get something out of me or, or free it. Or it's not, it, it's not an in, impulse built out of expression. It's an impulse built out of trying to understand through, um, through distinct observation and kind of, uh, yeah, let's call it that for now, distinct observation. I'd maybe early on felt when I was learning how to write poetry, almost like a fraud because I didn't feel compelled through a sense of expression. You know, uh, uh, experiences like fear or grief or depression are things that I, I experience, but I don't usually experience them and feel compelled to express that notion. I tend to internalize it. And then maybe 12 months later, it acts like a magnet in my brain that's, a, that's collected other kinds of data. And then I can sort of re reenact that experience in a new and fictionalized way. Poems are these weird little engines that you can have remarkably rich, deep, um, and uh, kind of wide experiences in, and it only happens within a, a matter of a couple lines. And I think the reason for that is that there's a distillation of perception that poems do. The best poems, you kind of immediately know where you are and what you're seeing and what's happening because it's the, the language is so precise that it becomes unmistakable. And because it's so precise and it's unmistakable, there's, there's no way that kind of anything else can be going on but the one experience that that poem has tailored. That being said, great poems create this kind of opening usually at their end where people can attribute all these other experiences in their life to whatever's being described in the poem. And so in that way, it taps into a kind of ore that um, maybe certain that, that runs under a lot of different experiences through life, if that makes sense. Um, but at the end of the day, I see it as poems can crystallize moments in life and living in a way that perhaps no other art form can, not even cinema, not even painting. And it's because of how they sort of burst awake in the brain and then are swiftly gone um, that they're unmistakable in what they do up there and all those synapses. I was thinking specifically of the poem Alloy. Mm -hmm. um, there was something, listening to you now, just talk about trying to recreate an experience. Uh, there's something about the disassociation and the sort of dreamlike immediacy of that poem that felt very much like what I would imagine the after effect of this, getting this news would mm -hmm. feel like. Mm -hmm. And yet there was no thesis statement or, or topic sentence sure. tying that all together. And so you, f I felt very much within, inside that moment, mm -hmm. inside that poem. And I have a question specifically about that poem, I was so struck by the turn. It takes several turns, but mm -hmm. the turn it takes at the end when the speaker is confronting this man on the street and then there's this pivot to sort of talking to 
a loved one and knew love, it was exactly like this when for the first time we stepped toward each other like two people folding a bedsheet, mm -hmm. which I think is such a perfect image of thank you of of two people coming together. It's so it's so crystalline. Um, and I just wonder if you can recall in the in the creation of this poem, like a moment like that to me as a reader feels like such a surprise mm -hmm. that turn. Does that are those surprises that come to you in the writing? as well maybe not that moment specifically but just in yeah, general but yeah no always and if the if i were to have like i remember working on the poem and then that thing showing up in my head the the image and the the description with using bed sheet and stuff i remember the moment kind of exactly in my head when it popped in had i started out with that like in my notebook and i was like okay i'm going to work a poem up so that I can fit this nice little thing in there, it would feel totally flat and dead, which is usually, I mean, I was dealing with that recently. I had something, I was like, oh, I got to work and build a poem, and I couldn't get it to work, and I realized it was because there was no organic way in which this came to be, right? Like, the work didn't generate it, just my imagination did. And if my imagination's not tied to some other kind of work, it tends to be way less interesting. I also think that in the case of what the poem's describing, which is this feeling this strange disorienting feeling of just learning about someone important dying. The mind is trying to do anything it can to not be where it is in that moment. And so it starts structuring these complex ways of getting out of thought and going here. And so it'll go all the way towards thinking about a lover as opposed to thinking about the loss it's going through actually in that moment, probably because it really can't even process it yet. It's having to open up a whole new pocket of thought that it was never ready to do. Yeah. Right, yeah, that makes sense. And it's and it's just cool that again, like the poem is enacting that rather than talking about it. Yeah, again, it, but it's not always that like if you want to have if you want to write something that describes fear that it has to be manic and sp sped up and all over the place or something, you know. There's there's these different ways and that's part of the thrill of language is that sometimes you have to do the opposite in language to achieve the effect, the mental effect in the reader. If mm. that makes sense, mm -hmm. you know. So a poem like this where someone feels shocked in a way by something, it has to actually move quite slowly and carefully and quietly, or the effect would feel theatrical. It wouldn't feel natural, mm -hmm. I suppose. And something, these poems seem to me like they sort of thicken up as you go mm -hmm. into them because you begin with like, for instance, peeling an orange and then that there are these sort of associations with it, with the Agent Orange, mm -hmm. with the Godfather on TV, mm -hmm. with uh, the the father's illness and the potential text messages that are not being received while the speaker's up in the plane. And it, and this, this very simple gesture of peeling the orange suddenly seems to contain so much. Mm -hmm. And 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 so do you sense with those with those images or, or gestures, the the dust under the bed, the peeling of the orange, like those feel like hot to you or resonant, like you know, maybe not what they contain, but they contain something potentially. I think it's the it's more the notion that, at least in my brain, but I think in the brain of a lot of writers, is that you be once you begin to see how one action, the ripples of one action, bleed into another suddenly it can become overwhelming like it swallows it for me it swallows my brain in a way that it sometimes is really exciting other times is terrifying and sometimes it's oppressive but you know like i like i like looking or beginning in places that are banal because it's to me 
it takes very little time to show that you're never free from the larger forces, the larger questions, the larger anxieties, that even in a moment of basic, you know, boredom of flipping through an art book in a house you're sitting, that that can set off a weird, a weird, dark place in your brain. And before you know it, you're in a totally different place in, in not just that moment, but in perhaps your week, you know, if that makes sense. And so it's all instinctual. And I think if I were to say like, okay, I think I'm going to write a poem about this. So let's start with an image of, you know, um, lighting a grill in the backyard or something. It would be terrible. It wouldn't do that. It's a lot of it's instinctual. And I think the way my brain works is that it adds tones or it adds like levels of heat to certain stuff to use your, your description. And that when I'm starting to write a poem, my brain says to itself, okay, I think this is the, where that orange is going to come in and now it's time to use it. And then I do. And then I look back and realize like, of course, that's how that had to work. But if I were to plan anything, it would be a disaster. Is there a point in the process, uh, maybe when you get to the revision stages where you move from making these sort of instinctive associative leaps to thinking more critically and analytically about how a piece is put together. Yeah, I tend to write, I tend to just spew a ton of stuff out and I allow the associations to go wild. So I just let them ping pong for a while, you know, back and forth and, and all over the place, if you will. And then once I think I've created a kind of organism, then I start reshaping it and starting to give it a, a kind of tighter poetic form. And I start to clean up the language. And then when I start to do that, you can tell which parts are singing to each other. And then it's way easier to go back and kind of clip stuff out. I mean, sometimes that takes a while. And sometimes I think there's something that's talking to the other stuff in a dynamic way, but I realize that it's not, you know, that you can remove it and have a, a have a faster connection. But I think a lot of these poems are all connected to this same idea, which is how the brain, when it wants, can really transform anything into anything else, especially if that brain is hell-bent on darker, more twisted and unfortunate frames of thinking, which mine sometimes is. <laughs> uh, I also want to talk about your use of long sentences. I noticed in particular in house-sitting and austerity, there were these very long prolonged sentences. Mm -hmm. And I'm a fan of mm -hmm. long sentences in prose. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wondered what your interest was in that as a formal move. There's a couple things about that. I'm a huge fan of the long sentence and most prose writers, and I read a ton of prose, especially fiction. Most of my favorite prose writers write long sentences or really complex sentences like Virginia Woolf, for example. Because I don't write in strict form, I feel that the form that's always kind of appealed to me is in fact a form of syntax, which can, can, in a way, becomes the form of thought. It controls how you organize your thoughts. And I like the music, the control, and the challenge that building out long sentences um, supplies. So I think you combine those sort of formal pressures and the way it controls the, the rhythms of thought with some of the visual, um, the sustained visual experience. And that to me is a really exciting place um, that any writing does, regardless of whether it's poetry or prose. So that's, and I'm, I'm obsessed with it. It's what I think about all the time to the point where sometimes I, I need to slow them down and like put a period in for everyone's <laughs> sake. And 
you know, one other thing I would articulate about this, the long sentence and stuff is that as our attention is constantly being chopped up and we're becoming used to this scrolling brain type thinking, which I myself am guilty of as well, there's a great freedom, I feel like, that comes when a sentence takes you and just kind of runs for a while and you let it and you're gone with it. And I miss that feeling a lot in modern life. I feel like the long sentence kind of forces you to be in your body more because you have to like yeah. sit there long enough it. to get to the to end of it. the sentence, which yeah. could be a page or more. Yeah. Um, it's this kind of, yeah, the sustained focus, which is increasingly rare. Increasingly rare. And I think there's a serenity that comes where, you know, you... That feeling when you stop hearing yourself think and you're just hearing the words of the writer on the page, you know, I always want that feeling of forgetting myself. And so as a reader, that's I adore that feeling. And so when I go to write, when I get lost in the complexities of these long sentences and how they work over a period of time, I lose myself there as well. And that's the deep reward, right, as a writer is when you disappear again, this time as a creator as opposed to a receiver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here, Will, on Off the Page. Thank you. This was a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. You can find more of Will's work at his website, williambrewer.net. And his first book, I Know Your Kind, is in bookstores now. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. This episode is produced by Jackson Roach, Megan Kalfas, Alec Glassford, Aparna Verma, Sienna White, Aaron Wu, Adesua Agbanile, and Kathy Wong. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Ivan Boland, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>